You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Luke Collins, an executive editor with McKinsey Publishing in New York. Today, we're talking about cars and more specifically, the future of the automotive sector in a world where the fundamental relationship between consumers and the act of driving is changing. Joining me today are two leaders in McKinsey's automotive practice based in two of the world's most iconic automotive cities. Hans Werner Kass is a senior partner in McKinsey's office in Detroit, the cradle of the United States automotive sector. And Detlev Moore is a senior partner in our office in Stuttgart, Germany, the city where Carl Benz in 1885 invented the automobile. Hans Werner and Detlev, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome, Luke. Welcome. So let's start with a subject that has never been very far from the headlines for the past couple of years. Uh, autonomous vehicles, self-driving vehicles. Uh, now, we can get into some definitions around what a self-driving vehicle is. I think that would be really useful. Uh, but the bottom line is, early this year, McKinsey predicted that up to 15% of new vehicles sold could be fully autonomous by 2030. Hans Werner, what, what exactly does that mean? Thank you, Luke. According to the definition of level four autonomy, by NHTSA, the National Highway Safety Transportation Agency in the United States. It means that a vehicle can operate under any condition, regardless of weather or regardless also of potential constraints in the infrastructure and the surroundings, fully autonomous without the intervention of a driver. What does it really mean? Uh, obviously, the technology is the first question which has to be resolved, and, and that requires advanced sensor technologies, but also multiple sensor technologies. And frankly, there are still technological barriers which we will need to address. Second, obviously, regulation. And regulation has to define very clearly under which infrastructure conditions, under which type of conditions in terms of technological reliability can one operate such vehicles. And third, in my view, what is often overlooked is actually the acquaintance and the acceptance of autonomy, autonomous solutions by the consumer. We as individuals need to feel comfortable to actually, if you wish, concede the control of the vehicle to a set of, call it, very intelligent processors and sensors and, frankly, underlying software beneath it. And that last point, I think, Luke, is very frequently overlooked. Yeah, I was going to ask Detlev about your opinion on this because a lot of people like driving. They really like driving. And the idea of handing control of your vehicle to a computer, for example, seems not ideal from a safety perspective, at least intellectually, and not ideal from the perspective of uh, not enjoying driving anymore. All of us know a lot of situations, like for example in the morning when you, it's rush hour and uh, you are in a big traffic jam, driving is not really fun. And if you have an autonomous driving system, I think that could be really improve your lifestyle. You could be reading, you could be relaxing. On the other hand, um, if, it is a, if it's a great day, it's a weekend, and you can drive in the countryside um, and, and have real fun, then of course you want to drive yourself. So bottom line, my sense is most people will love the choice um, and decide depending on their personal mood and the, and the traffic situation when they will use the feature and when not. It strikes me that you were in an ideal world, the, the safest conditions for autonomous vehicles would be one where every single vehicle is autonomous and 
Obviously that's not realistic. We're gonna have a situation where some people enjoy driving, they continue driving, they don't trust computers, for example, and you'll have some people who quite happily hand over control of their car. Is it possible for manufacturers and for the technology dealing with working with regulators, ensuring that the roads are set up a certain way, that there are signs that are set up a certain way to, to transmit the data that's necessary to ensure the vehicle is safe? Can we strike that balance? I think that's exactly the technological challenge where automotive manufacturers are working on. When we get to level four, uh, driving in the definition that Hans Werner um, gave us a little bit earlier, uh, then these cars have to deal with many, many cars that are still without the technology and are driven by ordinary people. So basically there needs to be sufficient sensor technology and especially there needs to be sufficient computer power within the car uh, and also computer algorithms that detect out-of-pictures, out-of-sensor data, real-life traffic situations and give the right reaction to the car. So that is the technical challenge and um, manufacturers are working hard on it. So that's why probably we will see uh, that level 4 uh, capabilities will be first in, let's say, road and traffic situations that are easier. So imagine you have a highway with separated lanes, you have great weather, uh, so that is much less complicated than having a, a small city with lots of small roads, uh, let's say here in Europe, at bad weather conditions. But with more and more driving experience and learning of the system and improved technological powers, we will see more and more situations that can be taken up by the system. This obviously pulls a lot of automotive manufacturers into fields that traditionally they wouldn't have been involved in. So what kind of things are car companies now doing to ensure that they have the, the technological prowess that they need? There are a common set of elements which all of them pursue. I think point one is you do need to have a very clear technological architecture defined under which you really want to make autonomous vehicles work. What that means is A, I mentioned it a bit earlier, is a multiple sensor technology as input. And multiple sensor technology, to give you an idea what is really behind it, could be camera-based sensors, which are detecting, obviously, visual pictures of our surroundings. It can be radar-based pictures. It can be LiDAR-based pictures. It can, frankly, even be um, uh, ultrasonic-based pictures or inputs. And the critical point number two under technological architecture is what experts call sensor fusioning. How do you actually compare and reconcile different sensor input so that you can indeed provide into the software algorithm? Could be simple thing like at which speed is an obstacle moving? Is it moving away from you, towards you, side of you, sideways of you? And that you then obviously provide a set of <clears throat> instructive orders to the vehicle. That type of processing has to happen in real time. And real time means that can be, you know, tenth of a second. And many OEMs, back to your core question, do invest um, organic resources, which means, frankly, that they do expand and hire the right technological expertise and engineering, but also engineers which are capable of systems integration, who actually can uh, marry, if you wish, in simple terms, the hardware with the software. And ultimately also uh, significant investments in prototypes and, frankly, also testing. Testing that can be in very well-defined, confined environments, but it can sometimes also be on open roads. You can imagine that the breadth and depth of technological expertise required 
is hardly to be found in a single company, even though we talk about here really significant large global companies in the case of auto companies. But certainly the technology companies have a word to say in that. And frankly, then last but not least, there is a very rich setup of startups and small companies which own proprietary expertise in the different fields of technology. Gotcha. And one thing I've always actually been curious about is the extent to which this effort, which it seems all car, car companies are now on board with, to what extent is that being driven by demand from consumers as opposed to simply a desire of car companies to undertake this effort? I'd say it is um, mainly uh, car companies thinking through what could technology do and how could technology deal with maybe uh, underlying desires of consumers, so spending their time in a different and maybe more productive way, but also additional benefits that could derive out of it. You mentioned, for example, from an insurance point of view, there could be less um, traffic accidents. So I would say it is more around um, supply-driven uh, and assessing the technological um, possibilities versus customers crying for um, this product um, today. But from my point of view, this is also pretty common in, in many tech areas where, in a way, innovation has to provide uh, or has to create markets um, and is basically tapping into unmet or latent um, demand. There are, in our view, four major forces of disruption happening uh, as we speak. And, and the unique thing is that they're happening in a simultaneous fashion. Today we talk about electrification, obviously that is not a new, but I would say a still relevant force of disruption in terms of a more efficient, uh, environmentally sustainable power drain. Number two, we talk about connectivity or digitalization. So with wireless technology, the amount of information being able to be transferred between different constituencies that could be a car, a third party, could be between two cars, etc., obviously opens up very new technological opportunities and possibilities. And third, um, it is about what we call advanced driver assistance systems leading the pathway towards autonomous vehicles. And last but not least is mobility. There are much more diverse forms of mobility. In other words, how do you get from A to B? The former three technological forces I mentioned, they could accelerate mobility, both the adoption and diverse forms of mobility, but they do, don't necessarily are absolutely needed to actually push new mobility forms. That is very important to know to understand those interrelationships. So what are car makers doing today? Uh, on the one hand, um, you see the spectrum of car makers who are cautiously exploring in their own way, they call it sometimes experiments, they call it sometimes small pilots, which of those future mobility forms or technological adoptions might be indeed be willingly adopted by consumers. That is one end of the spectrum. You see other car makers which are making actually clearly bets already today, including with equity investment and uh, investments into partnerships. In many cases, they involve capital. In many cases, they involve intellectual property sharing, but they don't have to, or it can be a combination of both. So you see a full spectrum uh, of, call it, engagement by car makers today. And frankly, if I stretch it a little bit further, when you look at the technological players, whether it's a Google and Apple or mobility providers like Lyft, uh, Uber, they also reach out to the incumbents. 
and understand what type of domain knowledge in the auto industry is critical to actually define and offer viable services. The relationship between the, the consumer and the automobile is getting more diverse. And um, we see uh, today that especially younger people are also much, much more looking for mobility service, maybe are less keen on driving a car. The traffic situations in many large um, mega cities is, is, is very problematic. Um, lots of congestion, uh, not to talk about um, the environmental situation. So uh, big cities are looking for opportunities to um, have less or better, better flowing uh, traffic. And at the same time, they also try to uh, free up additional land. And uh, today, in many cities, uh, a very uh, significant uh, portion of the land is occupied by parking spaces. And would one of the big implications of that be for car manufacturers that they will sell less cars? No, actually not. If you do a, if you do a model uh, calculation, then obviously if you have uh, such cars in, in, in car sharing or e-hailing uh, services have a much, much higher uh, amount of kilometers that they run. So the lifetime of such a car is, is significantly lower. Net-net, um, if you calculate, calculate it through with um, realistic use cases, the amount of cars is, is probably pretty much the same that you sell, but the life cycle is much shorter. What is the business model of the automotive company 10, 15, 20 years from now? First of all, it's still about building cars, obviously, but additionally to building the cars, they will have to provide services uh, around the car and they also, at least some of them, will go into offering um, a range of these mobility services to fully serve the customer in all the different use cases that they have. If I may add to that, look, um, I think at the end of the day, what we will see if you fast forward the movie, maybe 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you, you will see a hybrid uh, of offerings. So on the one hand, yes, as Devlev said, uh, designing, manufacturing, distributing, servicing cars will, will still be a core automotive, uh, if you wish, business for car makers or OEMs today. Because even the new mobility providers, they will need cars. But what I would emphasize is that companies, car companies, will at least be aware or engage in a much broader, let's say, perspective on selecting and picking, picking the right services. And they go beyond the car itself in terms of the more core service around the vehicle, in terms of maintenance, support for service for the vehicle itself, but really offerings which could either be tailored offerings of vehicles for mobility providers, could be partnerships to service and support mobility providers. It could frankly in some cases also getting engaged themselves in offering and operating mobility services. The trick will be to understand to which degree that is mutually reinforcing the own core business which you have. And could that indeed create new bonds, for example, with customers in terms of customer loyalty, as an example, or provide you significantly better consumer insights, which in turn, again, would allow you to design, engineer, develop vehicles which are much more fit for use. And fit for use means different type of use cases. We talked about different use cases. These type of customer insights, I think, will need to be developed by OEMs even in a much more sophisticated way 
compared what they have done today. Yeah, and this is an interesting one because, as you know, pretty much every automotive manufacturer's website allows you to build a vehicle and to get it in the colors you want and the interior you like and add all your various modifications to it. Um, and yet none of those websites allow you to click a button to actually just buy the car. As we have laid out in our recent research on the future of automotive retail, we see uh, some strong changes in the next uh, decade or so uh, in the retail landscape uh, to deal with these things. What we see is that there will be a hybrid of uh, traditional uh, dealer formats because many customers still want to see a car at least at some point in the customer decision journey. The physical experience will stay important. On the other hand, there will also be a more um, need for digital um, interaction. What we see is a hybrid of interaction format so that there is um, a seamless customer decision journey uh, in the digital arena combined with the physical interaction with test driving and touch and feel of the car. Yeah, I think um, we should never forget, Luke, um, that the purchase of a vehicle is from a standpoint of the price you pay the second most expensive purchase for any consumer of, uh, after the purchase of, an, of, an, of property or a house. So will it be completely digitalized in terms of information, inquiry, evaluation and transaction? No. However, will digital uh, and all the supporting devices, uh, which Detlef mentioned, like product configurators, play a much more bigger role? Absolutely, they will. And obviously, there would also be um, some real innovative options to give customers even more or better offerings for their needs. So just imagine that an automotive company offers you that with a fixed price you pay every month, you get the choice to have two or three different car models during the year. So for example, that you have an SUV in winter or you have a convertible in summer or for some special reasons you have a third version. If you all had that from one manufacturer uh, packaged into uh, a rate that you pay every month, that could be very attractive at least for some customer, customer segments. We will see that the next 10 years will bring more changes uh, to the automotive industry and, and the whole ecosystem uh, than we have seen probably in the last 50 or even 70 years. For automotive players, be it the traditional ones, be it the suppliers, but be it also a number of new entrants that we will see and are already seeing from the tech world or from new innovative service solutions. It will be very, very interesting times. And um, if we look back in, in 10 years, uh, we will see that the industry has massively changed. I was just thinking how funny it is because if we'd had this conversation a couple of years ago, uh, the entire conversation would have been around electrification of vehicles, um, which now seems to have completely been swamped by uh, self-driving vehicles and all these innovations you're talking about. So just to finish then, uh, I'm, I'm guessing Detlev, you probably have a, a big German car, Hans Werner, you've probably got a whopping big American pickup truck or something. Uh, what do you see yourselves driving in, uh, in 10 to 15 years from now? Definitely still a German car. Uh, I would <laughs> assume 
that I have uh, one fully electric uh, vehicle, uh, but I also will assume that uh, I have a, uh, a sporty car with a traditional combustion engine uh, for, for the fun. <laughs> So look, uh, uh, first of all, I do drive today, or our household, our family, both German and American cars. What do I drive <laughs> in a few years from now? Uh, I, I think I'm very close to where Detlef is. I certainly will have an all-electric vehicle in my car park, there's no question about it. But I do think that an electric vehicle can actually be producing also a lot of fun for driving. Because uh, without getting technically too deep here, the instant torque delivery uh, actually provides a quite unique acceleration experience and the handling, uh, if engineered well in terms of the weight distribution, is a quite unique experience. Uh, I would at the same time say there's always need for utility quote-unquote vehicles where you do need certain amount of space to get from A to B, that means for the family, for hauling stuff, etc. But all of us, we will actually also engage more in mobility services which are needed in certain circumstances. So it will be a, what I call a portfolio of ownership and um, call it mobility demanded or asked for services. And that is, I think, what will characterize me in the future, but also, I think, um, many consumers. Well, so all of us either drive or we are passengers in vehicles, so this is just a fascinating issue. Thank you very much, Hans Werner and Detlev, for your time today. McKinsey's Automotive Practice publishes extensively on all topics related to the industry. You can find those articles, reports, and research on mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.